my oldest brother and I are two very different travelers. <clears throat> I don't know what happened to me, but I have become the kind of person that likes to just get there. Anybody else like me? I want to like, get through the travel, and I'm going to get to the end of the destination so I can unpack my bags. and just, I just want to get there as quickly and as directly as I can. Anybody else with me? Okay, I got one. I got one. My brother, on the other hand, my oldest brother, Carlos, he likes to meander when he travels. Do you know anyone like that? <laughs> he loves to uh, stop and smell the roses and see the sights. In fact, when he travels, he has no idea when he's going to arrive because he's hoping that he will be distracted along the way. And oddly enough, he prepares for just about any circumstance. I'm not making this up. Uh, if you catch my brother on, on a day he's taking a trip anywhere here, uh, even in San Diego, you open his trunk, he will have boogie boards, baseball gloves, roller skates, tennis equipment, all kinds of things in there just in case. He says, you just never know what's going to happen. He likes to meander and get distracted and find places. Uh, and I just think that Jesus would have liked to travel with my brother rather than me. Because um, according to the story that we read, what should have taken just a few hours became several days' journey. Turn your Bibles, please. Uh, chapter 4, the book of John. We've been studying the book of John. Uh, we're in this series uh, called This is the Way. And uh, <clears throat> I'm convinced that Jesus would have liked my brother better. <laughs> don't tell him I said that, though, okay? We don't want it to get to his head. Um, <clears throat> The Bible tells us in the book of John, chapter 4, uh, that Jesus was trying to leave the south, Judea, and try to make it up to the north, uh, the Galilee area. And, and essentially, it would have been a day's journey, a few hours this way, a few hours that way, about 24 miles or so, thereabouts. So not too far, not too long a distance. We discovered last week, if we were with us, that rather than go around, take the long route like most good Jews, Jesus went right through enemy territory, right through Samaria. But along the way there, he stopped at a well, asked for a drink, and get this, he stayed there for over two days. Two days for just a few hours' journey. We're in John chapter 4. Are you there? Say amen if you're there. All right, John chapter 4, verse 43. We're going to pick up the story. Last week we read how Jesus stopped at this well, and he met this woman. But like my brother, Jesus was prepared for anything. A chance, a chance encounter with a woman uh, turned everything around in this particular city, and in fact, in the region. And after two days, verse 43, chapter 4, book of John, he finally left for Galilee. He started, got stuck there. Well, I wouldn't say stuck. But he stayed there, and, and, uh, and, and, and he spent time with the people. If you read the, uh, the verses prior to this, he spent time with the people there, the Samarians, uh, and, and, and he, he blessed them, and he planted a seed there. And the Bible tells us that after two days, I don't know where he stayed, I don't know who he hung out with, I don't know what he ate, <laughs> but he spent time with people. That's just how Jesus was. He finally left for his final destination, Galilee. And if you were with us last week, we discovered, we discussed how, you know, we, we're not from there, we just kind of lumped these things all together. But essentially, we're talking about two regions. Judea, Jerusalem is in the bottom, and then you have to go through sort of enemy territory to get to the top. This is how it is in Palestine. And at the top, you have Galilee. So two bodies of water, the Lake of Galilee at the top and the Dead Sea at the bottom. And Jesus' ministry is between these two places. He kind of travels back and forth if, if, if you look at the, the context of the New Testament Gospels. And at this particular time, he's trying to make his way to the, to, to the north, which coincidentally is where he's from. He's from the north. 
He was born in Nazareth, which is, which is in the north. And the Bible says here that he's on his way to Galilee, and if you were with us, you know it's because down in the south, after spending the Passover there, Jesus made kind of a scene, got people riled up, and he started doing, he spent about a few months there doing uh, his work, his public ministry. But eventually, he, got, he gained in popularity, and, and it created conflict with those who were following John. So rather than stick around and stay in the conflict, Jesus says, let's go to the north. And th that's why he's on his way to Galilee. But the Bible says that after two days in Samaria, he moves on to Galilee. But rather than go to his hometown, Nazareth, he just goes right past it. That's why the, uh, the, the writer here, the author, says Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And what that means is it's hard, it's hard to spiritually lead your own family. Amen? Anybody out there know how hard that is? It's hard to spiritually lead your own family. Somehow it's tough for them to get spiritual counsel from you. Probably because they've seen you at your worst, right? So Jesus did not go home to Nazareth. In fact, he, he passed on, moved on to Cana and then on to Galilee. And when he arrived in Galilee, verse 45, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival because they had also been there. Several months prior, as all good Jews would have done so, they, they, they journeyed down to the, to the south, to Jerusalem, and they had seen Jesus sort of in action, cleaning out the sanctuary and, 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 and doing um, miracles and signs and wonders. So when he arrived in Galilee, they welcomed him. Those in the south, especially the ruling party, the Pharisees, uh, they didn't take kindly to Jesus. But in the north, the Galileans welcomed him. And after spending some time there, the Bible says, verse 46, that once more he visited Cana and Galilee. And if you were with us, you'll recall that Cana is the place where Jesus is, is said to have had his first public miracle. You guys remember that, right? We read it earlier where he was at a wedding feast. They ran out of wine. And his mom said, do something, Jesus, because moms always want us to do something. Do something. And Jesus said, I, what do you want me to do? <laughs> but she said, do something. And you know what he did. So when he arrived there, it was, a, it was like he was among friends. He was known there. He was welcomed there. But the Bible says here in verse 46 that while he was in Cana, there was a certain royal official whose son was sick, lay sick at Capernaum. So maybe to get a little bit of the lay of the land, I told you that there's these two bodies of water connected by the Jordan River. And at the top is, is the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee. But what's interesting about this particular body of water is that it's actually about 800 feet below sea level. Um, so like 800 feet below kind of where we are. It, 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 and so from there, you go up the hills to Cana. And Cana is about 800 feet above sea level. So it's like a 1,500 feet kind of climb. About 16 miles in distance between these two cities. And if, if you heard of the name Capernaum, if you read the Gospels, you'll know that Jesus does a lot of cool things around there. In fact, he's very welcome. His ministry is very much welcome there. But, but none of that has happened yet. He kind of passed through there before. But at this time, you have this royal official who lives by the sea, by the, by the Lake of Galilee, and Jesus is up in the mountains. But the Bible says that this official had a son who was sick. Verse 47, follow along with me. And when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and to heal his son because his son was close to death. So there's a few things that we have to figure out here as we're trying to understand this particular story, this particular part of the gospel. One, despite the fact that the Galileans were friendly to Jesus, no one who was a royal official would have been friendly with Jesus. 
And here's why. Jesus was upsetting the establishment. But if you were a royal official, your interest was in keeping the establishment. And who we have here is not a Roman official, but more than likely a Jewish official. See, what the Romans did, and this is how they conquered, is that whenever they conquered a people group, they would find some, oh, what do we call them, Benedict Arnolds? I don't know, some traitors amongst the group. And they would, they would uh, get some people from the region, and they would put them in charge, but as puppets for their regime, if you will. Uh, so this kind of insulated them a little bit and sort of make, made them rule their own people. And, and, and the Jews were, were ruled by Herod. And so when, when we find this, this, this royal uh, nobleman, he was essentially serving in the court of Herod. So he would have probably been a Jew, but not a well-liked one. You following me? I mean, who likes those that are, you know, doing the dirty work of the oppressing regime? No one likes them. And, and so it's very possible that this person was not well-liked in the area. And it's even uh, harder to imagine that he would come to Jesus for help. Because Jesus sort of was having this, this reputation of being a disruptor. But if you look there, you recognize that there's a reason he comes for help. Because he's desperate. His son is sick. In fact, close to death. And the Bible says that he came from Capernaum, made the climb 16 miles up the hill, and went to Cana to find Jesus. And in your version, it might have a different expression, but in mine says, and begged him to come and heal his son. At first glance, it looks like this is a concerned father, right? And, 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 and you know, he, he makes this long journey, and, and he, he just needs to... To some help for his son, and who could blame him? He's asking, he's desperate, it makes sense. But Jesus' answer to this request is what's troubling. So picture it. Jesus is amongst friends. He's enjoying the company of people that like him. And in barges in, a royal official should be there. He's out of place. He's made this long journey uphill, both ways, uphill. And he finally gets there, and he begs Jesus, please help me, my son. And Jesus basically gives him what we call the gas face. He, tell, he just says, no. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus says, you, you will never believe. He, he puts the block up, the stiff arm, whatever you want to call it. Jesus almost seems like he's uncaring. It appears like he's not concerned that this man is desperate, that he's come all this way, that his son is dying. And Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you won't believe. So I've struggled with that. Why would Jesus turn away a father, a concerned father, who just wants help for his son? Why would Jesus, like, so ruthlessly shut the door on him? In fact, the, continue, the, 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 the official says, Sir, please, come, please come down before my child dies. Jesus' first answer there is troubling. But it's also telling. It's also telling. What we've discovered as we've been reading the book of John is that Jesus is not an ordinary man. Yes, he is fully human, but he is also fully divine. It's what John said from the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and lived among us. There's nothing that has occurred underneath the sun that the Word didn't have a say in, doesn't have knowledge of or power over. And what we discovered, because we've been reading these stories about Jesus' interactions, is that Jesus knows the heart of anyone he encounters long before they reveal their heart. That's why when Nicodemus came at night, Jesus knew what he wanted. 
That's why when the woman was at the well, Jesus knew what her life was like. He knew what they were really after even before they knew it. So it appears in this case that Jesus knows something that we can't see at first. It appears that Jesus is being careless or, or, or harsh, but it's probably because he knows something. So I studied here. I tried to read it uh, in different versions, looking up some, um, some uh, uh, commentaries. And I was struck by this. The uh, Seventh-day Adventist uh, commentary describes this particular event this way. I'm just going to put it on the board if I can. Hello. Why in here, Mikey? Let's try again. There we go. The Seventh Heavens commentary says, <clears throat> The nobleman came, but he had plans to believe in Jesus if Jesus would heal his son. But Jesus was after something different. I, I, I struggled with this at first. I said, what, what do you mean? And here's what they describe. Theologians believe that essentially this man came asking for help, but inside his heart... Although he asked for help, he wasn't quite sure that Jesus could deliver. So there was some belief and plenty of doubt. In fact, together with this doubt, there was a, a bit of a pride. It's as if this man was saying, okay, I need help, so I'm asking, but I'm not sure that you can deliver. But I'll tell you what, if you can deliver, then I, I will endorse you. And after all, you want my endorsement because I am a royal official. Imagine the kind of clout you might have in this area if you win me over. So when Jesus sees and hears this request, it's not just an unselfish father pleading for his son. It's someone who thinks he has something to offer Jesus and someone who's oblivious to how much he needs Jesus. So he says to him, prove it to me. That's why Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you're never going to believe. What seems harsh at first is just a recognition of the true state of this man's heart. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I think we need to know, you need to know that Jesus is just as aware of your heart as he was of this man. Because I think that there are some of us in this room, in fact, many of us, who are still coming to Jesus and are here right now in this moment with this very same idea. We want Jesus to prove to us we kind of believe, but we're waiting for him to win us over. We're waiting for him to win our endorsement. We plan to believe if only he would show us some signs and wonders. So we come and we ask, and then we fold our hands, and we tap our foot, and we say, let's see what you got, teeth. And Jesus' answer to that is, unless you see signs and wonders, See, I marvel at that because his answer lumps this man. He's not just talking to him. You see that? It's used as a plural. And the uh, King James is like, ye. But, but you people, at least that's how the NIV translated. And every time I hear that, you people, I get offended right away because, you know, who likes to be lumped in with everyone else? You people. Whenever someone says that to me, you know, well, we're going to fight. <laughs> I hate that. But you people, like, who, who are you? But Jesus uses that. Unless you people, is one man, but he lumps them together. 
with all those who take this stance. And I'm afraid that includes some of us today. We have plans to believe, but we're not quite so sure. We want a sign. This is the word for sign in the original language. Semeon. A sign, a distinguishing mark, something that proves the authenticity. We want a sign. We want Jesus to show up and do something so that I will be compelled to believe. And Jesus says, unless you see signs, you're never going to believe. But here's the problem. This demand for signs was not uncommon. It's, in fact, what was being asked or required down in the south in Jerusalem. You know the Pharisees. You know the Pharisees. They, the Bible says they came and they began to question Jesus, testing, asking him for a sign. Prove that. Why? Who says you have authority? Show me something. Then I might believe in you. Then I might say yes. Then I might receive your invitation. Prove it to me. But here's what I'm going to tell you today. Because I know some of you guys are asking for a sign. Signs are confirmations, not coercions. Confirmations, not coercions. The Bible talks repeatedly about God sends signs to affirm faith, not to demand it. In fact, every single sign, wonder, every miracle that you'll find recorded in Scripture is preceded first by an act of faith. Jesus never overwhelms someone's choice. He doesn't coerce you. He doesn't show up and force a sign on you so that you have no choice but to believe. That's not how he works. He does not use his power to cheat you out of your choice. So this man comes and asks for this miracle. But what he's really asking is for Jesus to prove his authority. Thing is, Jesus has authority. That's what John is spending this whole book writing on. To help us understand that Jesus has all the authority under heaven and earth. He'll say it over and over again. But Jesus does not use that authority to undermine your will or your choice. In fact, his invitation is always come. Come and see. Come and see. Signs are confirmations once you make the choice. They're not coercions to force you to make the choice. Think about it. The same word was, was used here. Remember this? We, we, we uh, enacted it last December. The angel appears, says to the shepherds, and this will be a sign. Same word. This will be a sign. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. The truth is happening, but the shepherds had to actually get up and go see. A confirmation. You see that? The act of faith always precedes the sign. That's how it is. Because God is inviting you to believe in him. Jesus is offering you, extending an offer, an invitation. He's not going to twist your arm, put his knee on your back, and force you to walk in ways you do not want to. Sometimes we wish we would. We wish he would. We wish he would force us, manipulate us. But that's not love. That's control. Something that God refuses to do. I know as a human being, I wish I could control other people. Amen? Come on. Don't lie. Sometimes you wish you could control your kids, right? You wish you could do some magic buttons that you could make them do your will. Like, I had this child who... Uh, leaves her socks in all places of my household. And there's nothing I have 
discovered. No magic button. And I've tried all kinds of buttons that can make this behavior change. I've tried rewards. Like, I'll pay you. I've tried punishments. I've tried encouragements, friendly talks. You name it. But even this morning, as I was leaving the house, out of the corner of my eye, two little scrunched up pieces of, of, uh, of two socks is scrunched up. I wish. We wish, right? But if we could control people, if we could control people, how would we know if they love us? If I could demand that she obeys me, how would I know that she would choose to? I would never know that. What I would have is not love, but slavery, control. So I just looked at those socks and said, dear God, please <laughs> give me the grace. And I just left the house. They're still there. God offers us an invitation. And this is what Jesus is saying here. In fact, he confronts this man and his sentiment. And he says, unless, unless you people see signs and wonders, you are never going to believe. Believe. See, this is the word for believe. You'll say it again. Pisteo. And what it actually means is to place confidence in. It's like to, 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 to have this the sense that Whatever is being offered will, will happen. It will be true. To, to, to take your, 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 your decisions and your belief on the confidence that the promises will be kept. That the choices will lead to where they've been, uh, uh, they've been uh, offered. So to believe, it's not a, uh, just a mental exercise or a psychological exercise. It's essentially taking a confidence that you will do an act that leads to something. And Jesus says, this is what I want from you, for you to place your confidence in me. Place your confidence in me. So he confronts this man, and he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you are never going to place your confidence in me. But there is no amount of signs and wonders that will force you to place your confidence in me. You have to choose to place your confidence in me. You have to trust that I am able. The Bible tells us here that the man insisted, sir, come down, please, before my child dies. The man persists. He says, I really need this help. And so Jesus offers the choice again. Listen, verse, verse 50, he says, go and your son will live. Go and your son will live. This is a, this is a fantastic moment here. Jesus hasn't done anything. In fact, he just, you know, just turned him away. He just kind of. Put a cold shoulder, but the man persists. And so Jesus says, if you're serious, now it's time to make a choice. Go and your son will live. He didn't abracadabra. He didn't actually go. Because the man was convinced Jesus had to show up at the house and, you know, hold his son, do the thing before the, before the miraculous event would take place. Jesus says, no. Do you trust me? Will you put your confidence in me? And the man was there up the hill, 16 miles, 1,500 feet, and he had to make a choice. Do I hang out here and wait until Jesus does what I think he should do, uh, what I expect him to do, what I think his job is? Or do I place my confidence in him and take him at his word and turn around and go back home empty-handed? It's, it's a moment, but it's the same invitation Jesus always makes. Do you trust me? Will you trust me? Go. And your son will live, but he will only live if you trust that I am capable. 
And this is why we know that the man's heart was changed. The Bible says that the man took Jesus at his word and he left. Would you have left? Would you have left without any evidence? By the way, you know, there was no phones, nobody could, no way to confirm with what was happening back home. Would you have left without any evidence that Jesus had actually done anything for your son? Not only, listen, not only did the man leave Jesus' presence, get this, he doesn't even rush back home. I told you, 60 miles would have taken a few hours in, in the day. Uphill, but now it's downhill. I mean, he could be home before dinner. But if you read what happens, the man spends the night in Cana. He doesn't rush back home. You know why? The Bible says it. Because he took Jesus at his word. He placed his confidence. And if you believe that Jesus can do it, then you don't need to rush back home anymore. You know what he did. A man placed his confidence in Jesus. He said, I'll take you at your word. You said it. I choose to believe it. I will take you on his, at your word. Verse 51, while he was on his way, his servants met with him and with the news that his boy was living. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday, 16 miles downhill, does not take a day and a half. He hung out in Cana, spent the night. 24 hours later, he was on his way home. And they were on their way up. And it said, yesterday. And look what the Bible says. The fever left him. At what time? At one in the afternoon. Verse 53. Then the father realized that this was the exact time that Jesus had made him the offer. Your son will live. So he and his whole house believed. See, that's the thing. The invitation is, will you place your confidence in Jesus? Time and obstacles are not for him. Everything for God is an opportunity. And this is our opportunity. The Bible says that without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. This is what it means to place confidence. It means I'm going to follow the path that he's outlined for me because I'm certain that he will reward my seeking of him. It means, listen, that you must come before you can actually see. We want it the other way around though, right? We want to see before we take a step. We want signs and we want wonders. We want confirmations that God is who he says he is. And we want demonstrations of his power. And we're waiting for our endorsement until he proves that he deserves it or has earned it. In fact, lately. Because if we were honest, he's done many things in the past. Amen? He's got us out of many situations in the past. He has blessed us through many difficult seasons in the past. But lately, you know, things have changed. I'm older now. I'm wiser and more experienced. No, I'm not really sure if he's up to the task. But Jesus' invitation doesn't change. He says, come, come and see. And you must come. Before you can see. So I have this question for you. Do you trust that God is able? Because that's what it's going to require. Before there are any confirmations in your life. Signs and wonders don't come before belief. In fact, Jesus' power is activated by our faith. Jesus' power is activated by our faith. And in some ways, it is limited by our faith. Yes, God's cosmic will cannot be stopped. 
But God's presence in your life is entirely up to you. Do you know that God's invitation to come and see has always been the same? But people who have come and gone before us, some have rejected it, some have received it. God loves us all, but the Bible tells us clearly, many are called, but only few are chosen. Wide is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the path that leads to righteousness. Do you believe that he's able? Do you believe that he's able? Because if you're waiting for him to prove it to you, you're going to be waiting a long time. But if you take him at his word, his power can be unlocked in your life. For what? I, I'm not quite sure. But I'm confident, I'm certain that there is something that you need in your life. So here's my final question for you. What is the word that you need to take today? Baba says that this man took Jesus at his word. What's the word that you need to take today? Perhaps it's God's word to forgive somebody in your life. I don't know. Perhaps God has been knocking on the door of your heart and say, please, please, trust me, if you forgive, I will bring reconciliation. I'm able to do that, but do you trust me? You have to forgive first. Maybe, maybe the word is trust me with your resources. Learn that I am generous and I will bless you, but you've got to take a risk and trust in me first. But you've been saying, give me more, God, before I will be generous. And God says, do you trust me? Do you trust me? What's the word that God is trying to give you today? What's the word that he's putting on your heart? What's the invitation that God is making to you? I believe that Jesus has a word. And you probably don't have to guess about it. It's something that he has been challenging you, urging you, pleading with you. Baba says that the Holy Spirit is with us constantly, teaching us and revealing all things. So my prayer is that you would hear God's word and that you would take it to heart. You must come before you can see. This is the way. There is no other. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way. And if you're going to see, you have to come. You have to follow. You have to trust me first. And if you do, you will see that I am able. He is able, friends. I have to choose that just like you do. Even in this moment, as I feel uncertain, concerned, worried, insecure, fearful. And in all those moments, I have to trust that God is able to keep me and you together, to uphold this church of ours, to keep us close to his heart. But what's the word I have to take today? What's the word that you have to take? My prayer is that the Holy Spirit would impress it upon your heart and that you will be restless until you trust him. This is the way.